I'm Tavi Desir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavi Desir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavernasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Carice Anderson. There's no question Carice is a seasoned expert on how to succeed in the corporate world, following various leadership and non-leadership roles at Deloitte, Aon, and Cord Ferry, as well as her current executive role at BlackRock. It's thanks to this extensive experience that Carice authored the book, Intelligence Isn't Enough, A Black Professional's Guide to Thriving in the Workplace, where she breaks down some of the preconceived notions and fears black professionals might bring into corporate spaces that could be detrimental to their career success. And after reading her book, I knew I wanted to speak with Carice to learn how both black and non-black leaders can benefit from understanding about these misplaced assumptions so we can ensure that everyone succeeds under our leadership. Hi, Carice. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, Tanvir. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited about our conversation. Now, Carice, while the target audience for your book is Black professionals, what I'd like to do with our conversation today is both help Black listeners of my podcast benefit from your insights for how they can thrive in the workplace, and at the same time, help non-Black people like myself better understand the experiences and perspectives of their Black colleagues so we can bring more empathy to the way we lead and in the process, do our part to create a more welcoming and inclusive workplace environment. Sound good, Carice? Sounds amazing. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to discuss with you is something called a black tax. Now, black listeners know what this is, but I don't think many non-black people do. And I like what you have to say about this black tax because I do think it's very empowering. So could you explain what black tax is and your perspective on how black employees should approach it? So I will explain it in two ways, because there kind of are two definitions for it. You know, when I initially wrote my book, I was living in South Africa. I lived there for 10 years. And when they talk about black tax, it is the the financial burden that you pay when you're the first one in your family to make it. And you've got to pay, you know, your sister's school fees and your parents' retirement um, because you are the first one that has, you know, essentially gotten out of the economic status into which you were born. And a lot of that has to do with the, the history of apartheid. When I was talking about it from an American context is the idea that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. You know, you have to prove yourself so much more to, to almost overcome the assumptions and the stereotypes that, that people have made about you because you're black. So you feel the need to go over and above to be excellent, to be exceptional, because you are trying to dispel, like I said, the stereotypes and the, the misconceptions and the assumptions that people have about black people. And that's the tax that you pay. I think the other thing is what we were talking about, you know, before we 
started the official conversation is just, I think it's just the mental gymnastics that you're constantly doing as a black professional, you know, to, to sort of monitor yourself and adjust yourself to be in predominantly white spaces, you know, whether it's our hair, you know, the, the whole angry black woman trope, you're constantly, you know, I think for years I tried to have zero to no emotions because I never wanted to fall into that stereotype. Um, and so I think it's also, like I said, just that mental gymnastics that you're trying to, that you're constantly thinking about so that you don't fall into stereotypes. Yeah, thanks for sharing your thoughts on this, Carice. I, I wish I remembered who told me this, but I was speaking with one expert about the experiences of marginalized people in the workplace, and they shared this wonderful imagery that I think will help all of our listeners better understand and appreciate what we're going to discuss today. I was told that those who are part of a dominant demographic group have to understand that while we might all be walking in the same direction, people from marginalized groups are walking in parallel with the dominant group and not side by side. And as such, the path they're taking is sometimes not the same. There are different obstacles and roadblocks those in the dominant group might not have or experience to the same degree. So I think it helps keeping that image in mind to better understand the challenges and difficulties marginalized groups experience in addition to the obstacles we all encounter in today's workplaces. And I like the pragmatic and optimistic approach you share in your book for how Black professionals can navigate this reality. I, the, the thing is, I tried to focus in my book is, what can you do? How, what are you empowered to do, right? Because at the end of the day, we all have mortgages and college tuition fees that we need to pay. We need the jobs that that we currently have, right? Or the, or the jobs that we want to have. We need these jobs financially, right? We don't all have that safety net to fall back on. And so we have to function in these spaces as they are. Not to say that the spaces don't need to change or that they're not trying to change, but while they are changing, what can I do myself, right? How, how can I empower myself to be able to survive and to thrive in these spaces, you know, because there's so much data and research out here that is very disempowering. You know, I, I think I saw a stat from a consulting firm that said it's going to take Black people 95 years to achieve parity with white people at every level of employment. I mean, 95 years, I'm probably, I'm going to be dead, you know, so that doesn't give me a whole lot of hope. And so I wanted to write a book that people could leverage to be able to Focus on the things they can control and influence. I can't control and influence corporate America or even, you know, the organization for which I work. But what I can do is I can manage myself. I can, I can, you know, leverage those, my behaviors, my mindset, the relationships that I build. I can leverage those because I'm in control of those. Um, and I, that's where I wanted people, or at least I'm, I'm able to influence them on some levels, right? So I wanted people to focus there as a, as a, you know, sense from from a sense of empowerment as opposed to a victim now carice the focus of your book is to help black professionals understand that they can't just rely on their education and intelligence to help them succeed but that they also have to flex and grow what you call the three major corporate muscle groups which are knowing yourself that involves understanding your story and your mindset the second one is knowing others which is about building and nurturing relationships in the workplace not just with people in your in-group, but also with those who can help you advance your career. And the third one is knowing your environment, which is about developing a better understanding of your organization's culture. So I'd like to start with the first one of knowing yourself, where we examine our mindset, which is about our beliefs, perspectives, and thought patterns. 
when I was reading this chapter, I'd say that as a child of Asian immigrant parents, I relate to some of the beliefs that you discuss here. For example, the idea that we should keep our head down and let our work speak for ourselves is a big one. I remember being chastised by my parents and my relatives that I shouldn't speak out or challenge things because I would get penalized for it. And no, I didn't heed that advice, which is something you also advocate black professionals do. But again, I'd like to focus on some of these mindset beliefs and perspectives that are unique to black professionals. So I'd love it if you could explain the challenges black professionals have with failure and how this is tied to the baggage they put on themselves, as well as what you call stereotype threat. And with this understanding, what are some steps black professionals can take to embrace a healthier, more productive mindset? I mean, I, like you mentioned, I mean, I just talked about the, the concept of, of failure in my book. And I think, I think as black folks, we're, we're just told we can't mess up. There is no room for error, you know, because if you mess up, they may not give the chance to someone who looks like you ever again. So there's this tremendous amount of pressure to be perfect and to be certain and to dot all your I's and cross all your T's. And, you know, when I really started breaking that down, because I think that's, you know, a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome, you know, and imposter syndrome has those two elements where you externalize your successes and you feel like you're a fraud, basically, and that somebody's going to find you out. And what I, what I, discovered with imposter syndrome is a lot of us have an unreasonable performance bar that no one can meet and no one in the history of humanity has ever met because humans make mistakes. It's part of the terms and conditions of being a human. And so it's not about, you know, getting, letting people off the hook to make silly mistakes, but it's realizing that even if you try your best, you will still make mistakes because you're learning, because you're growing and because you're a human. And so some of it is, I think, lowering some of that expectation or that performance bar um, and realizing that everybody who's successful has had help, you know, because what a lot of what's, you know, some of those mindsets with imposter syndrome are, you know, I need to do it perfectly the first time. I have to do it without asking for help. I need to be able to do it faster, cheaper, quicker than anybody else. I need to do it right the first time. These are all unreasonable expectations. And I just think, you know, lowering those just a little bit right, will help us not feel like we're failing, right? Because we can't meet that impossible standard that we set. I think, you know, when you talk about stereotype threat, I think it falls into, you know, like I grew up in Alabama in the, you know, early 80s. And I think a lot of that, you know, my parents grew up in a segregated Birmingham, Alabama, you know, couldn't go to the high school that was closest to them, had to ride in the back of the bus. I mean, the whole nine. And I think as a child of the 80s, I was raised with all these images that told me being black is a problem for white people. And so I think what happens with stereotype threat is that because you know that you, you unintentionally fall into some of those stereotypes that people might have about you. Um, and there's been a whole bunch of research around, you know, not just black folks, but also women, you know, when we're put into certain situations, um, we might perform less than, how we typically would perform because of the environment, right? And because we're worried about falling into stereotypes. And so I think, you know, and, and I mentioned this when we were talking before we officially started recording, I think all of this mental gymnastics takes up space that we could be using to do our actual jobs. 
And I know for me, my, my second job out of undergrad, when I would walk into a conference room, I would count how many Black people were in the room. And that's how self-conscious I was. And I oftentimes I didn't speak up very much because I didn't want to, you know, embarrass all Black people. And then I realized, you know what, there's like 1.2 billion Black people on the planet. I can't carry all of them on my back. I can only speak for myself. I can only represent myself and I will make mistakes, but at least they will, it will be because I'm being authentically who I am. And so I think I just tried to sort of slough off a lot of that pressure and t- from time to time, it still comes back, but I keep trying to coach myself to say, I can't be responsible for everyone. I can only be responsible for myself. And if people want to blame, you know, want to take my mistake and, you know, apply it to all black people, that's on them. I can't do anything about that. All I can do is try to show up as my authentic self and, and hope that people are receptive to that. Again, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, that I want us to, you know, walk that balance of addressing things so that black listeners can benefit. But I also want the non-black listeners to also kind of understand things. I think when we look at, you know, how news is reported in business journals, whether that's Forbes, Fast Company, or what have you, it's always interesting to see too, whether it's women or black leaders, the scrutiny that's put on them is so much greater than what we see with white males. Like a female executive at a software company, the company doesn't do well. There are days where people are dissecting everything she said and did, and this is why it failed and so forth. And so you could see that any other woman who's thinking now of going into such a position is going to have second thoughts. Whereas if a white male messes up, it takes a while for them to get tufted out. Best example we can use right now, which everyone can understand, was the CEO of BP during the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, where after so many days of scrutiny, he just says out loud, look, can I just get back to my life? And it was only at that point that people began to think, I don't think this guy is competent in this role. Let's forget the fact that so many millions of gallons of oil was being spilled into the Gulf of Mexico without any decisive plan of action of what to do about it. So I think that while at the one hand there is that burden that black professionals put on themselves where they, like you said, they look around the room, they notice how few of them there are. So like, look, I'm kind of becoming the person who's, you know, making the path for others to follow. I do think the rest of us do have to take a little bit of ownership here to say, yes, but how much do we scrutinize women and black leaders and other marginalized groups when they have a moment of failure as compared to white males who are predominantly the leaders of so many organizations and how often we are willing to say, yes, but you have to understand what's the economic conditions. You have to understand this. You have to understand that. We're more willing to give a pass. Whereas with these other groups, it tends to be like, well, we gave them a chance. So I don't think they're a good fit for this role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, sometimes the logic of that makes me laugh because if you think about it, you're trying to hold the, the, the underrepresented person, the Black person in this case, who's had less exposure, less opportunities to a higher standard than you are the white man that is clearly, at least in America, had more exposure, more access to opportunities. And you're holding that person to a lower standard. Like logically, it doesn't even make sense, right? <laughs> but I think some of it is rooted in, you know, there is a success profile. Um, and it, especially in a corporate space, it is a white man. 
that if you, you know, I remember like I worked at a school district years ago and they had the picture of all the school superintendents through the history of that school district on the wall. All of them were white men. And then we had their, our first female superintendent, I think it was like 2009, right? And I just thought, wow, that is a visual that is very reinforcing. Mm -hmm. And it tells people this is what success looks like. And so when you have somebody who doesn't fit into that success profile, there is there is doubt. There is skepticism. There, there is an additional layer of questioning. Uh, and we have to ask ourselves why. You know, the, the reason those people were in those positions, not that they weren't necessarily qualified, but there was a candidate pool that did not allow for women and people of color to be, you know, they weren't a part of that, that candidate pool. They could have been a great candidate too, but they weren't allowed to be. It wasn't that those individuals, you know, across the board were the, were the sharpest. It's just that there was a lot of bias in the system that allowed those folks to get in that pool and rise to the top. And so I think we have to ask ourselves at work, what are the criteria that we're using to allow people to get into promotion pools or opportunities for stretch assignments? You know, and are we judging one group more harshly than the other? And on what basis? And a lot of times what I know, I know in corporates, it'll be potential versus performance. So some people will promote on potential. Like they haven't, they don't have the track record, but we think they have what it takes and we're going to lean in and give them a, give them an opportunity, even though they don't have the track record. I feel like a lot of times women and people of color, we have to have checked every box before people would give us that opportunity, right? Or allow us to, to earn that opportunity and that stretch assignment. And I think we just need more people questioning themselves as opposed, because it's, you know, our brains work in a biased manner. And we want to have that easy, quick decision. We just want to, you know, make a decision and move on to the next thing. But we need to take the time and really ask ourselves, why do we think this person is better for this opportunity than the other? What are the data points? Have I talked to all the key stakeholders, right? There's some tangible things that I think people could do to make sure that they're not allowing their bias to drive those decisions. And to, and to drive that judgment, you know, like you were saying a second ago. So I absolutely agree with you. I think there's definitely a responsibility, you know, uh, for all of us, you know, even if we're not making a decision, are we challenging those who are? Are we looking around the room and say, who's missing from this conversation? Whose perspective are we missing? That could be, you know, really germane and relevant for the decision that we're about to make. I think we have to challenge ourselves on who we give the benefit of the doubt to versus not. This brings to mind something interesting I learned from reading about the next corporate muscle group, Knowing Others, which is about the importance of working on the relationships that will help you grow your career, as well as embracing your whole story. I was fascinated to learn how Black professionals tend to be more interested in degrees than on relationships. And when they do focus on relationships, it tends to be just looking for mentors and overlooking the importance of sponsors. So, Carice, could you delve into this a little bit more? And what are some things Black professionals should consider adopting to extend their relationship building, which will help them with landing sponsors who you're kind of inferring just now are the ones who are then going to create that space and those opportunities for them to then elevate and attain those positions that they are desiring to achieve? And this is why, you know, I start the first you know, the first major chapter in my book is around your mindset. So really getting people to examine what is that running audio tape 
I'm, I'm dating myself now, Tanvir, by using the word tape. But you know what is <laughs> what what is that that soundtrack in your head in terms of the advice to be successful in your career? And I think a lot of the advice that I got growing up, that a lot of my black friends got growing up, was you know be smart, work hard, get degrees, and you'll be successful. Well, if you look at that advice, nowhere do other people feature in that advice at all. It's all about you. And it makes it sound as though your journey to the top, whatever the top means for you, is going to be a solo mission. And it's just not the case. And so I ask people, really examine what is what are the messages that you've been given about being successful? Because I literally thought, oh, I'm just going to ride this wave to the top with my brain and my hard work and my two degrees. I really believed that. Um, and then once I realized, you know, the people are making decisions, you know, about my career and I won't even be in the room when those decisions are made. And some of these are the biggest decisions of my career. <laughs> I will not be in the room when somebody decides if I get promoted, if I get the stretch opportunity, what my bonus raise is going to be. I'm not going to be in the room. And so I had to realize the people that will be in the room, I want them to feel like they know, like, and trust me. They're willing to put their own political and social capital on the line for me to get those opportunities. And in addition, they'll provide cover for me once I get the opportunity. So they'll say, when Carrie gets this promotion, I'm going to make sure she's good. And if she makes a mistake, it's on me. It's not on her. Or I'm going to, I'm going to coach her through it, right? You need those people because, you know, you can't do it by yourself. You just can't do it by yourself. And so I think examining some of the messages that we've been given and then examine, you know, do an assessment of your relationships at work. Who are the people that are mentors versus those sponsors? I've never even heard the word sponsor till I was probably in my mid thirties. And, you know, cause it was all about mentors and, and, you know, for those folks that are listening in, you know, a mentor is going to give you some good advice. They're going to share lessons learned and wisdom from their journey. A sponsor is going, is somebody senior in your organization who can open doors that you can't open and give you that cover, you know, advocate for you in rooms that you're not in. You know, mentors aren't always sponsors, but sponsors are usually mentors. And, you know, I heard this quote that said, you know, mentors are requested, sponsors are earned. And you can only earn them through your performance. Nobody's going to put their name on the line for a stranger and they don't know your track record. So you have to earn it through high performance. Um, and and I, I have this analogy that people laugh at. I'm like, a mentor is like a chicken that lays an egg. A sponsor is pig that gives bacon. It's a different level of investment, right? <laughs> and if you want people to give that investment, you've got to give them a reason to believe you're not going to embarrass them or that you're not going to waste that capital that they've spent their whole career building, right? And so I think it's really important for us to talk to other people who are successful and understand their journey. And I promise you, every successful person out there will tell you those people that stood in the gap for them, helped them, you know, lifted them up, gave them opportunities. No successful person has done it on their own. And, you know, you're not going to be the one to break that, <laughs> break that rule or, or that approach, right? We all need each other. And so we need to think about how can we build those relationships in an authentic way that works for us, but that also works for other folks as well. Yeah. And this is such an important point because again, if we recognize that, you know, the higher up you go in most organizations, 
the less you're going to find people from your in-group if you're a part of a marginalized group. Mm. So it becomes harder then to find someone who could be a mentor who, you know, understands your life experiences and can give you that guidance. So then you're kind of out of luck. But with sponsors, it's really about someone who sees my potential, someone who's seen what I've contributed and can extrapolate out from there. How much further can this person go and how are we going to help them achieve that? Because if we help them accelerate in their growth, that growth is going to pay dividends back to the company. And if I'm the one who helps advocate for them in the room, that gives me currency in the organization because I'm the one who discovered this hidden talent within the confines of our organization and brought it up front for the organization to benefit from. And I think this is such a powerful and important thing for black professionals and anyone from a marginalized group who's like thinking, well, I really have to find somebody from my ethnicity, from my demographic group and so forth, because otherwise, how am I supposed to grow? It's like, no, it's you really want to look out for sponsors, people who are going to see what you're contributing. They understand the value you're bringing, and they also recognize how much more you have to give, provided you're given those right opportunities and will advocate for you to get them. Absolutely. And look, I mean, it's it's daunting when you are very different from most of the people around you. I mean, when I worked at Deloitte, I had a senior white woman older than me assigned to me as a mentor. And I remember thinking, what am I going to talk to this white woman about? (laughs) And, you know, luckily Deloitte had sent us both a set of questions and we both came to the first meeting having answered those questions. And, you know, she, she was, she was very open with me and very vulnerable about mistakes she'd made in her personal life. And it really humanized her. And so that's to your question, Tanvir, earlier about what can non-Black people do that's the kind of thing that I think is really helpful is opening up and being vulnerable, role model that vulnerability, lead from the front, you know, humanize yourself, share your mistakes, share your development areas, your lessons learned, because I think that's what will help kind of bridge that gap. You know, because at the end of the day, when we take away all these, you know, the the external, we're still people and we have a lot of the same dreams and hopes and aspirations and we we all make mistakes, right? And so we, we're trying to find that point of connection with folks who are different than you, I think is super important on both sides. Um, and I just think that's, I just wanted to mention that point. Oh, and I love that you bring that up, Carice, because as I pointed out to you before we got on air, there is so many parts of your book where I know if we were to discuss it, non-Black people would say, yeah, I have that same problem, mm-hmm. right? And that's great. That's our shared humanity. And I'm glad that you're bringing that up because, you know what, being able to share with someone, like, look, this is the rough patches I hit. Here's the hardships I encountered. Oh, so it's not just me. Now, it might be a different one, but that doesn't matter. That's like you said, we're exposing ourselves to being vulnerable. And especially if you're in a position of power or authority and you're doing that to someone subordinate, it really creates this space of psychological safety where someone's now feels like, well, now I can open up and I can share. And the fact that we are sharing at that level really creates a deeper bond than the transactional one where we just focus purely on the work and deadlines and project updates. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think the other thing that I think it communicates is you can make mistakes and you can still be successful. Mm. 
because I think sometimes we look at senior people and we're just like, oh my goodness, they must have just had this straight line trajectory to the top. But when you talk to people, you will hear them talk about, I didn't get that promotion or I got a bad rating or my manager and I didn't get along or I got fired or laid off. Like you will hear those challenges, but you'll only get that if you know if you open up and the other person opens up too, right? And and we try to look at each other as people. Um, I think that's where there's so much power, you know, in those relationships, like you said, and they're they're not transactional. They can really be, I think, quite empowering, you know, and quite illuminating for 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 both sides, right? But we have to be willing to go there and open up to folks. And I'll say one other thing, because I know somebody might hear, well, Carrie's, you know, the people in my environment are not safe to open up to. I hear you. Because everybody's not safe to to tell your whole story to. And I don't advise you to tell your whole story to everybody. I think you have to examine the safety of a person, the safety of that environment, and figure out what is it that you you can share. But you need to share something. You can't just come and be, have the wall up, you know, because that's something I'm, I'm, I don't know if, I think I mentioned this in my book, how I know a lot of Black people, we've been told, don't tell those white people your business. They're going to use it against you. They, they are not your friends. You did not go to work to make friends. And based off, and that advice is rooted in a lot of history and a lot of, you know, unjust things that have happened, right? So it's not that it's rooted in, you know, people's just make it, it's not fantasy. <laughs> it's rooted in reality. But I think we have to realize that advice of not needing other people, it may have worked for your parents or your grandparents, but it, in this highly collaborative world we work in now, that's uber competitive, it doesn't work. And so our 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 approach is going to have to evolve because our world is very different, and those relationships are critical to to your success. So, Carice, the last corporate muscle group you encourage Black professionals to develop is knowing your environment, and this is about developing what you call cultural intelligence, which refers to our ability to interpret, understand, and become comfortable with, and be able to operate within a culture that is different from our own. So I was wondering if you could describe what are some of the elements in Black culture that can impede Black professionals from succeeding at work and how they can increase their cultural intelligence? I mean, I think two of them I've already talked about. I think the go it alone mentality, that idea that I'm going to, you know, climb Mount Everest all by myself, that is just not the truth. (laughs) It is a a lie, guys. You're not going to do it by yourself. And I think the second one is what I was just saying about thinking that you can go to work and have this wall up, you know, because people will not trust you if they don't know anything about you. I mean, you're a stranger. You're maybe you're a stranger who's really good at Excel and PowerPoint, but people don't know anything about you. And when they're sitting in a room deciding who they want to advocate for, they're going to advocate for people they know, like, and trust. Mm. And I just think if you don't do, and they might even advocate for people that, are not as bright as you. And, and I, cause I know that happens a lot. You know, you'll, you're sitting there and you're watching somebody who you have worked with, who you know is not as smart as you. And you're looking at them like, how is this person getting promoted over me? And it's probably because they've got better relationships with the people in the room making the decisions. And that person is thinking about who would I want to work with? Do I want to work with person A who I, who is totally transactional, has a wall up, won't let me in, doesn't tell me anything about themselves, Or this person B who, you know, they're pretty good at their job, but we've got a great relationship and I can be open with this person and I trust this person and they trust me, right? Human nature, the person is probably going to go with option B. 
Um, and so I think it's just really important that we examine those some of those beliefs that we have um, because they get in the way of how we show up and they get in the way of us really being able to sort of add those elements that are going to help us be successful. And look, I'm not, you know, if we say 100% is top-notch performance, I'm not saying you go down to a 70. I'm saying go down to a 95, you know, or a 90 and spend that extra five or 10% of your energy and your effort on building relationships, you know, as opposed to over-indexing on performance, you know, you're at 115% on your performance and you're nowhere on your relationships. <laughs> like, I think we just need to, you know, perform really well, be really good at your day job, but also leverage those opportunities, go to those happy hours. You don't have to drink if you, if that's not your thing, but be there and converse with people, you know, go to those office lunches, look up from your, you know, your task list and really think about, I could spend this next 30 minutes checking off items on my to-do list, or I could go, you know, into the pantry and have a coffee chat with someone. Think about the little moments where you can build those relationships. And I was telling someone yesterday, if you're not a natural relationship builder, put it in your calendar. If there are three to five people that you know you need to build relationships with to be successful at work, talk to their assistants and say, hey, can I get a quarterly time, a repeating calendar invite? That's quarterly because I want to touch base with this person and I want to make sure it doesn't fall off my radar screen. Like, I think there are some real tactical things that we could do to make sure we're setting aside that time to build those relationships, you know, especially if it, it's something that doesn't come naturally to you. Now, Carice, there's one last piece of insight I want to discuss with you, and that is the point you make about how we can have what you call courageous conversations, what others might call difficult conversations. And first off, I have to tell you how much I love this pivot, because when we say something's difficult, we've already biased ourselves against taking action because this is now something that's unwelcome or not desired. But by saying that these conversations require us to demonstrate courage, encourages us to step up and have that conversation that needs to be had so we can move forward and grow. And you describe three courageous conversations in particular that black professionals need to get comfortable having, and they are professional delivery conversations, which are conversations you have with your boss about the work you've done, the second is professional development conversations, which are when we ask for feedback or coaching to help us in our professional development. And the third courageous conversation is personal dynamic conversations, which are conversations where we talk about our boundaries and the interpersonal dynamics we have with our colleagues. I was wondering if you could share an example of how we can successfully carry out each of these three courageous conversations. I think, you know, across those dynamics, right? I think just understanding, first of all, they're important. You know, you're not going to, and I, I was saying these to you before, you know, at work, you know, if you think about like, I, I, I mentioned that I have a older sister and a younger brother and we share DNA. We grew up in the same household, same background, but we are wildly different. And we have disagreements and conflict. <laughs> so you can imagine when you go to work, you you don't share the same background. You don't share DNA. You don't you may not share values. And so you you're going to have these conversations where people are different than you and you have to use those conversations, those courageous conversations to bridge those gaps because there will be gaps because you have a an understanding and a perception of how a situation has gone down and that other person has a perception and a situ and a, and a you know um, viewpoint on how that situation transpired 
And so, and that conversation is just about you all coming together and aligning on, okay, this is, this is what transpired and this is how we're going to move forward. And this is what we'll both take away that we need to do differently going forward. And I think, you know, especially the earlier you are in your career, if you're, if you've joined a new organization, you're in a new role, different organizations communicate in different ways. Some organizations are very direct in their communications and some of them are indirect. And so some, you know, I think you have to have those conversations to clarify, like I said, and to close those gaps between you and the other person, whether the talk, topic is about, you know, a work assignment or if it's about your career progression or if it's about some sort of tension or conflict between you and another person, it is ultimately about closing that gap and moving closer to that person so that you all can work more effectively together so that you can deliver that outcome to whoever your client is. That's real. And, and also so that you can progress in your career at the pace in which you want to progress, right? It's just, you know, understanding, I think that meaning behind it, realizing that these are skills that you can build. You know, I think there might be some people who are naturally good at these conversations, but the rest of us, we have to build, it's a skill set. Because I remember when I used to have these conversations when I was early in my career, my palms would get sweaty, my heart would race. Now I don't really have that because it's a muscle that I've continued to exercise over the course of my career. And I'm much more comfortable having those conversations. Now, do I do backflips when I know I have to have one? No, but I do recognize the importance of it um, and that I'm trying to build this relationship and sustain a relationship with someone and that I want to deliver the very best outcome for my clients. And so when I think about those three elements, it gives me the courage to go ahead and have that conversation. Um, and like I said, continue your skills, practicing, maybe before you go on a conversation, practice with a friend, you know, and, and understand that the conversation can go in a lot of different directions and be open to the idea that there are things that you don't know about this other person's perception of how this situation went down. And I think if we can stay open, balance between advocacy and inquiry, you know, staying curious, which is the inquiry part, the advocacy part is, is you sharing your perspective strike that right balance. And I think if you keep doing that, you keep exercising that muscle, I think you get stronger and stronger in terms of having these conversations. Well, Carice, at the start of our conversation, I told you that it was my hope that we not only help provide guidance and insight to Black professionals listening to this episode, but that we shed some light for non-Black professionals so that they might better understand their Black colleagues. And with this improved understanding, better support their Black colleagues so we can have a more equitable, inclusive, and supportive workplace environment and you've certainly helped me have that conversation. So my thanks to Carice for helping all of us get a better understanding of what black professionals need to do to thrive in their careers and help the organizations they work for to succeed. Thank you so much, Tanvir. If you'd like to learn more about Carice's book, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tanvinasir.com LBC. And if you're interested in learning more about my speaking work, either for a keynote or a workshop, please check out my speaking page on my website at tavernasir.com where you can learn more about the topics I share in my keynotes and corporate training sessions, as well as what past attendees have had to say about my work. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I'd appreciate if you could take a moment here to rate and review my podcast on your preferred streaming platform. I'm Tavernasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.